Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week I am doing a Scottish case and I'm just going to give people a heads up if they are scared of flying or plane crashes or things like that. I maybe wouldn't recommend listening to this one or just a warning in advance. I am not a huge fan of flying either and there were some bits that this gave me the total fear. So just a warning. Um, This week I'm going to be telling you the case of flight Pan Am 103, which is most commonly known as the Lockerbie bombing. Samantha, I take it you know about the Lockerbie bombing. I've definitely heard of it. Thank God. If I hadn't, there'd be questions as to why I'm even doing a podcast. Um, there's still obviously questions about that. But um, no, I've heard of it, but I don't know the insides and outs. So I'm excited to hear. OK, I'll get started. So obviously this takes place in 1988. I think most people know that. And it's Wednesday, December the 21st. And Pan Am Flight 103 has started its journey in Frankfurt, Germany, and arrives in London Heathrow to change and swap aircraft and carry on from London to JFK in New York. On this flight, there was 243 passengers and 16 crew. And as I said, it was going from Heathrow in London to JFK, New York. The plane took off at 6.25pm. I don't think there was any delays or anything, not that I could find. I think it took off in its normal time. And the route was over the north, like, north of Scotland southwest and then they were going across the Atlantic. At 6.58pm over the north of England communication was made with an air traffic control in Presswick and at this point they were recorded to be 31,000 feet and got the go-ahead from the control for Atlantic crossing so I obviously don't know much about planes and this was actually really interesting kind of reading into like what they have to ask etc but you have to get obviously a go-ahead to start crossing the Atlantic Ocean. At 7.02, they stop responding to anybody the plane isn't heard from. And at 7.03, the responder in the control office in Presswick notices that it's disappeared from the radar screen, that the flight has just gone. The black box on board, the Pan Am Flight 103, recorded a black, a big bang at this time. And air traffic control began trying to make contact again, but no contact was made. So obviously, planes don't just explode for no reason really so a bomb exploded in the luggage hold sorry of the aircraft which created a 20 inch hole in the side of the plane which obviously completely causes the plane to depressurize um this also ripped the wires out so the lights went out so this plane is now got a massive hole in the side of it and it also has no electricity so the passengers are in complete darkness 31,000 feet in the air and like everything has gone Captain tried to react, but actually the nose was one of the first things that was ripped off and headed down. So the actual nose in the cockpit was one of the first things to go. And that obviously goes hurling towards the ground. At 7.03, the aircraft completely crashes to the ground. Now, the engine was still on, which is why it caused such a massive explosion when it landed on the ground. Because obviously it's not just parts falling. The engine is still on. The plane is still working. From the minute the bomb exploded, it took 36 seconds to crash. Now, obviously, where it landed is kind of why we're telling this story, because it landed in Lockerbie. 
Now, Lockerbie is a small town in Dumfries and Galloway, which is the southwest of Scotland, and it lies like approximately 120 kilometres from Glasgow and 25 um, kilometres from the border with England. Um, I couldn't really find the population of the 80s, but in the 2001 census, at a population of 4,000 people. So I'm imagining in the 80s, obviously, there was probably less, but I'm not sure by how much. Um, I have driven through Lockerbie, but I haven't actually been in Lockerbie. Samantha, have you been to Lockerbie at all? Do you have any thoughts on Lockerbie? Nope, none at all. Sorry. Yeah, I think it is one of those, and like, no offence if anyone's from Lockerbie, but unless this had happened, Lockerbie really wouldn't be a known place in Scotland. Like, it's pretty, a quiet little town, do you know, nothing really going on. Of course, it's Scotland, it's December, it's very, very cold at this time of year, and it was actually the shortest day of the year that year, and people were finishing up Christmas shopping, do you know, they were finishing up school and work and starting to celebrate the holidays. This would be when people were finishing up for the Christmas break and the pubs in the high street, etc. I don't think there was many, but people were out and about and having work Christmas parties, etc. At 7.03, the ground shook and a loud bang went off and the whole sky of Lockerbie was lit up. The main body of the plane landed in Sherwood Crescent in Lockerbie, which is a small street with like family homes. I think it was kind of terraced houses, which... It seems like a very normal place. This made a one metre deep and 47 metres long crater in the street. Now, this completely wiped out the houses between number 13 and 16. They were completely gone and those around were really badly damaged. So as much as we say, like, some houses were damaged and you see these pictures of, like, after bombs, etc., a plane landed on these houses. There was absolutely nothing left and... Of course, there would have probably been people in some of these homes. The bot now obviously there's a huge ball of fire, right? And this comes obviously tumbling out the sky. And as much like, do you know when I was reading this and you honestly can't believe what I'm about to say to you? That what do you think, Samantha, this ball of fire hit? Um a house or the ground? A it bird? Hit. It hit a petrol station. Oh, fucking hell. Which caused that to explode. So that obviously, the petrol station has obviously then engulfed because fire and petrol are not a good combination. Um, Another flight, which was actually going from Glasgow to London, responded saying it actually saw the fire from the air. So if that was going at the same height as the the flight that landed here, that's like 31,000 feet up. And they could actually see the destruction on the ground from the air. Now, Dumfries Emergency Services obviously get loads and loads of calls. And this is actually the largest crime scene in their history. Again, no offence to Dumfries and Galloway Police. Like, you're obviously General Emergency Services, Police, Ambulance, Firemen. But this is completely off the scale for any kind of emergency service department. But especially somewhere like who's dealing with places like Lockerbie, etc. Where there's probably nothing really going on. And the next minute, there's a plane in your town. Um, Rosebank Crescent was also hit. Um, The cockpit also landed in a sheep pen four kilometres away. So, unfortunately, I do believe there were some sheep injured or not killed. Um, Of course, as much as the plane has came down, the contents of the plane have come with it. So, of course, I am not wanting to be too grim, but, of course, there was bodies kind of about and some of them were still attached to their chairs some of them had already kind of been ripped apart on the way down so there was parts of bodies around 
There was also suitcases, coins, seats, books were all over town. Like some of them were like went through people's windows into houses. Some of them were like all over. Some of them were found in like miles outside of Lockerbie. So can you imagine the scene and imagine the clear up of like all these people's belongings everywhere and in your houses? Now, as I said, there was 243 passengers and 16 crew and there was no survivors from the flight. Now, also 35 of them were students at, here comes my pronunciation, Syracuse. It's a university in New York. And it's spelled S-Y-R-A-C-U-S-E. I'm not even going to attempt it. Okay, <laughs> but it was a university in New York and 35 of them were from that university and were travelling home for the Christmas holidays. Now, as well as everybody on the plane, 11 Lockerbie resi uh, residents died as well. Now, of course, everyone's helping out, like residents, emergency services, and the army is pulled in as well. Also, there's other emergency services, like people, I'm assuming like Glasgow and etc. emergency services were called in too. Now, a base was created at the school, and it was called like a disaster recovery scene. And this was to start coordinating efforts, like to figure out where people were going, etc., and actually make some control off the situation. Now, of course, the weather is not helping. Like it's cold, it's windy, it's dark. This is going to be really difficult to do a recovery operation, especially in the 80s where you don't have as much as we do now to do these kind of things. Of course, as well, it's not long, but the news turns up, which when I read that, I was like, oh, I hate when press just jump on these scenes. But then I wouldn't be able to tell you this without the kind of news and the press helping out and supposing getting information but again like give people time to actually sort things now they began interviewing local people and people were saying that they saw like burnt bodies in their street people's luggage was in their garden etc as i kind of said earlier it was just a complete complete carnage all over this little town um locating and identifying victims was so difficult as seats had literally ripped from the plane and thrown them miles away. So seats with bodies in them were being found way out of Lockerbie. And obviously knowing how many was on the flight, you were looking for X amount of bodies. And actually that is, it's not like they were all in one place, unfortunately. As I said earlier as well, some bodies were easily kind of strapped to their chairs, which is an easy identification. Some bodies were completely ripped apart. So that was obviously someone's job having to kind of like figure out who was who. And they actually turned the town hall of Lockerbie into a makeshift morgue. And that's where the bodies were taken. And that's where they kind of tried to do the ID process. It reminds me a little bit, obviously, of um, Hillsborough, the Hillsborough disaster. I know, obviously, that wasn't a plane crash, but they had to kind of make a makeshift kind of morgue centre where people would go to to identify, like, victims. But, of course, what makes this more difficult is none of the victims on this plane were probably from Lockerbie. They weren't. They were either from Frankfurt into London or London going to America so actually I could be wrong but I don't think there was anybody from Lockerbie on this plane I really don't think there was so that's obviously you're trying to identify people or trying to get bodies of people that nobody knows now of course the whole area the whole of Lockerbie is now a crime scene and the FBI come in to help as well now witnesses were tracked down and interviewed to get as much info as possible and there was over 4 million pieces of wreckage found and 15,000 witness statements were taken about the disaster that night now, of course, after the kind of an initial fright and trying to sort everything and, you know, doing the morgue, blah, blah, people are now wondering, like, what happened? So they begin searching for the, the plane's black box, which was found in a hillside. And they basically go over it 
and it confirms that nothing was wrong with the plane, but an audible explosion is recorded. So they knew quite soon on it was a planted device, which means there was a bomb on board the flight. A Samsonite suitcase was nearest to the blast and had marks of like an explosion slash residue on it. So they believed the bomb was planted in that. They also found a tape player, which they think contained explosives. And that was also something similar that was found earlier this year at a failed terrorism attempt in Germany by the Free Palestine Group. So they had recognised this tape player and that's how I think they put the kind of link to that. Of course, it's suspected terrorism on American flight. So all eyes at this point turn to the Middle East. Now, there's quite a few, like this is when it gets kind of confusing because I'm just going to kind of give you different kind of pieces of information of who was accused at the time. But of course, someone was found guilty for it at the end. Spoiler. But just bear with me just now. So the Front of Palestine General Command slash the Palestine Liberation Organisation all had reasons to be responsible because Palestine, Libya, Iran, of course, they all have issues with America at this time. Now, like nations were in talks to like lead to peace, etc. But this obviously hadn't been the case just now. And in the lead up, the FFA, sorry, the FAA, which is the Federal Aviation Authority, raised a security bulletin. And this was raised because the USA embassy in Helsinki got a phone call from a man with a Middle Eastern accent and he told them that a bomb would be on a Pan Am flight from Frankfurt to America, done by a Palestinian group. Now, this was passed on, of course, to the Pan, like all airlines, including Pan Am. But I don't know what was done. I don't know if any extra security was done there. But of course, like that had to be raised. A timing device was then found in the collar of a grey shirt. And this and the tape recorder eventually could be linked to Libya. And they went on to like ID clothing in this case. And this is when it's like mad because especially remember this was the 80s. They managed to link the clothing in the case to a shop from their labels to Malta. So they managed to find a specific shop in Malta that sold these clothing from their labels. And it was called Mary's House in Malta and a really quiet part of like the town. It's like only locals really shop there. So in September 1989, they go out and they speak to the brothers who own it. The brothers answer and one of the brothers says he couldn't really help. But the other brother actually remembered selling the trousers to a foreign man in the shop. And it actually stood out because, as he said, it was only really locals that shop there. So because this man wasn't local, it really stood out. He said this was roughly October, November 1988. He said it was a bit of a bigger man in his 50s, six foot tall, and said he could potentially be Libyan. He bought quite a lot of stuff, but he definitely bought those trousers as well. Now, on September 14th, he's actually brought into the Maltese police and shown pictures of suspects. And he said the photo seemed similar, but the man was younger, like in the time that he went to the shop. But that wasn't really the case. So they ruled that out. Now, he was shown 50 photos and said he couldn't ID anyone as the man in the shop. In February 1991, he's brought in again. And he's shown more photos and he recognised someone as the man. And it's a Libyan national who is also head of security for Libyan Arab Airlines and done loads of stuff like intelligence officer, etc. And his name was Abdul Basset. Now, of course, he has a longer name, but that's what I'm going to refer to him as for this podcast is Abdul Basset, which I have heard other people re- like refer to him as. But his full name will be online if you want to find that out. And at the time of the bombing, he was 36. So he wouldn't be in his 50s, but he obviously gets looked into. 
Now, more investigations began happening, such as, like, how did it happen? And an inquiry between October 1990 and February 1991 included lawyers for the victim groups and lawyers for Pan Am. Now, the purpose was to establish the facts and advise, like, what action needed to be taken. Because, of course, we've got the fact that a bomb was put on this flight. But how was a bomb able to get on this flight? Now, the bag was described was the one and it had been loaded on as unaccompanied luggage from Frankfurt. So it wasn't with anyone. It was unaccompanied. It wasn't checked or accounted for in Heathrow, nor was it x-rayed or weighed at any airport. And they just put it on the plane as unaccompanied luggage. Now, oh, that the bag... just screams 80s, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Nowadays, that would obviously, unaccompanied luggage could empty a whole airport. <laughs> but now, like, obviously, that was just loaded onto the flight. Now, the bag originally came from Malta and it came in on an earlier flight into Frankfurt that day. Um, the luggage check, so luggage is checked by the airline and only in the airport it's checked in at. So if this bag was checked in in Malta, where potentially all this is happening, it then got to Frankfurt, was transferred from a flight from Frankfurt to Heathrow, which was then transferred from Heathrow to New York. So it would have only been checked in and looked at potentially in Malta. So no additional check was needed from those in Germany. And they unloaded the luggage from the small jet from Malta and then obviously put that onto the plane going to Frankfurt and then unloaded, like they basically parked the plane from Frankfurt right next to the bigger jet for New York and basically just put all the bags on that Frankfurt plane into the New York plane because they were all transferring over. Now, unaccompanied baggage should actually go through extra security, but it didn't. And Pan Am didn't get liability as not acting different from any other airlines at the time. So as much as they didn't do it, every airline wasn't doing it. So the family's obviously upset. They wanted some sort of blame there. But anyway, advice was obviously better security at airports and do more thorough checks. And Pan Am were actually found guilty later of lack of property security screening, which I think, you know, they can't really deny that. They didn't do a lot of security screening. Now, they obviously began looking at the staff in the Maltese airport, if we're looking at back to Malta, and nothing was found connecting anyone to the bomb. The logbook of these dates, however, was actually missing, so people believe it was destroyed. So the logbook of staff working that day was destroyed. Now, back to Abdul Bassett, it was tracked to find that he was in Malta at the time he should have been, and he was actually using a fake passport. So on the 16th and 17th of December, he used a fake passport. And after December 1988, he went back to Tripoli from Malta, but didn't use his, and it was never used again, the passport. Um, now, as well, Abdul Bassett actually has links to Colonel Gaddafi, which um, I was aware of who he was. I was a modern studies geek at school, but if you're not sure, his name was Murmur Mohammed Abdul Minyar al-Gaddafi, but he's known as Colonel Gaddafi, and he was a Libyan revolutionary politician. Um, he also was a theorist as well, but there was like loads of stuff going on with him. I won't properly go into Gaddafi, but if you want to look into him, um, there's loads of information there about what was going on at that time. Another name pops up now as well, which is Lamine Khalifa Ima. Now, he was a manager at Malta Airport, and when police traced him, he'd gone back to Libya and couldn't get a hold of him. Now, officers searched his house in Malta and found a diary from 1988, which contained notes of his meetups with Abdul Bassett. On December 21st, they also called each other at 7am. On November 1991, indictments put on both, but they both stayed in Libya 
and extraditions were refused. So obviously that was to get them over and they were refused by Libya. Now this caused a lot of lef- uh, ref, sorry, and it wasn't great. So Nelson Mandela steps in and says that they can use Africa as a mutual venue for a trial. UN also gets involved and tries to help with this as well. Now, in August 1998, a trial in the Netherlands is agreed to. So, don't know why they turned down Nelson Mandela, but they agree to a trial in the Netherlands. Now, Libya paid reparations, I think it is, to um, victims' families. And this goes ahead for both these men to come over to the Netherlands for a trial. Now, they use Camp Zeest, which is a former Air Force base, but it's actually like called Scottish soil for the trial. So they rename it Scottish soil for the trial. Now, of course, like a prison, a media facility and a courtroom are all then going to be based there. And they model like a Scottish courtroom. They make like a Scottish courtroom over there. Now, they don't have a jury for this case. Instead, they have a three judge panel. Now, both men arrived on the 5th of April 1999 and are given straight over to the Scottish police and are formally charged with murder, conspiracy to murder, and then detained in this place. Like, it's basically boarding houses. They kind of have space to, like, cook and stuff for themselves, but they're basically detained there. They're formally ID'd by um, Tony um, Gauchy, which is actually, I forgot to mention that earlier, that's the name of the brother that works in the shop in Malta. And he actually formally IDs them and he ID'd him successfully. Although this was obviously a bit of a rift because he's able to ID Abdul Bassett as the man that comes into shop. But of course, his face has been all over the papers. And by this point, Tony has been shown photos of actual Abdul um, Bassett. So there was a bit of like rift there of like, should he have been allowed to then go on and form the ID? But they do anyway. And on the 3rd of May 2000, the trial begins. And of course, they have the three judges on the panel, which is Lord Sutherland, Lord Lord Colesfield and Lord McLean. The defence said it wasn't their clients, but started to blame it on other groups such as Palestine. Um, and that's basically the main body of their defences. Obviously, the defence can't say it didn't happen, like it happened, but what they're saying is it wasn't either of those men. Um, neither man took the um, stand in their own defence. They both decided not to take the stand. On January the 31st, 2001, so that's not even a year, judgment is given by Sutherland. Now, he accepted the suitcase had a bomb and likely from Malta. In relation to Lamin Khalifa Ima, they mentioned the diary entry, but concluded, like, nothing came from this. Like, nothing came from them going to Malta together and they couldn't assume things. So they decided there was insignificant, oh, insufficient goodness, evidence to convict him of this. Abdul Bassett, however, is a different story. Of course, they've got quite a lot against him. The false passport, the testimony, a lot to do with it and his relationship with others, etc. Now, he was found guilty of all charges and was given a life sentence. They quickly appealed, which meant a bigger panel of judges, not a jury. So this makes more of a kind of a single through this game. And his representatives brought forward a new fact that, according to them, Heathrow had found a padlock forced open that had given access to airside, saying that someone could have ran on to the tarmac in Heathrow and got to like where they load the planes and got the luggage on there. But they said like definitely security would have noticed and there would have been like clear evidence that there was a break in on that day. So that appeal was completely d- dismissed. Now, Abdul Bassett is then flown to Barlini. 
where he will set, serve a sentence in the secure unit. Now, we talk about Berlini quite a while because it is the largest prison in Scotland um, and is basically based in the northeast of Glasgow and is known as either the Big House Bar or Bar L. Like, I think we've spoke about this. In 2018, the plans for its closure were announced. We've, I think we've talked about Berlini quite a bit. I think we've had quite a few of our stories that have gone into Berlini. I feel like we could actually do an episode on people just in Berlini. If that's something you're interested in, just let us know. In 2003... Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you gave me a fright. In 2003, Livia made a 2.7 billion payment to the victims' families. Um, now, Gaddafi, however, this bought him trust with the West and he began being friends with Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and created a kind of like friendship with them. He also appealed against this, um, not Gaddafi, sorry, um, Abdul Bassett also appealed against this in 2007 and said there was a delay due to the complexity. Um, but, but what he said this time was that there was a conspiracy against him and he was framed. But of course, that's dismissed again. Now, in December 2008, Abdul Bassi is actually diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer. Now, on the 24th of July, 2009, his legal team make a request for him to be released from prison on compassionate grounds. Although it was not a precondition for compassionate release, his defence counsel lodged a request to abandon his appeal shortly after his private meeting with the Justice Secretary in Greenock Jail. So he's basically abandoning his appeal wants to be let on compassionate grounds and the abandonment of the appeal was accepted by the High Court on the 18th of August 2009 and after the diagnosis of terminal cancer he was released from prison on compassionate grounds on the 20th of August after only serving eight and a half years of his life sentence. His release was authorised by Scottish Judge Secretary Kenny McCaskill. Now of course this distraction, this decision sorry, attracts significant news coverage like, I, I don't really, yeah, basically, it's like there's widespread celebration in Libya, obviously a hostile reaction in the United States, and obviously a huge divide in Britain. Like, what is your thoughts? I personally do not think he should have been released on compassionate grounds. Samantha? Well, no. Like, I'm sorry. You're you're in prison. Yeah, shame. I you know, nobody should have cancer and it's an awful thing. But like, no, you, you literally got put away for putting a bomb on a plane. Like, stay in there. You're not getting out, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. But that's my opinion. <laughs> yes, no, totally with you. I am absolutely with you. So of course he's released on twentieth of August two thousand and nine with terminal cancer, right? So of course he dies on the twentieth of May. 2012, two and a half years later, after he was freed from a life sentence because he was said to be dying. So he lasted two and a half years. God. So he had two and a half years of kind of freedom before he passed away with terminal cancer. His brothers said the family refers to the deceased as a convicted innocent. So they still, the family do not believe he did it. They refer to him as the convicted innocent. And may God bless his soul, he added, which I don't, in my opinion. Now, relatives of those obviously killed in the bombing expected relief and in some cases anger because 
as Susan Cohen, whose daughter was among the 189 Americans killed on the plane, said he was a mass murderer. I feel no pity, which I actually do agree with her in that sense. Like, as you said, Samantha, that is awful that you had terminal cancer and dying in prison must be obviously not a great way to die. But he killed hundreds of people, innocent people. So why would he have that before he died when they had to die in a horrific way? Now, of course, like that's the kind of end of the story. But just reflecting on Lockerbie now, there are some people that were around at that time with the Lockerbie bombing that still cannot return to Lockerbie, which is a town they grew up in, like lived in, and they just can't go back. Lockerbie is still obviously a kind of functioning town. There was a cycle in 2018 for the 30 year anniversary, because, of course, like it's nearly 20, it's nearly 35 years since this happened. And they did like a a cycle so the first stage of the journey involved like the local school pupils riding like exercise bikes or their own bikes in school and then the second stage was a group of people cycled from Lockerbie to Edinburgh Castle um just for the 30th like the 30 year anniversary now the third stage was actually Lockerbie going to the word again um Syracuse the university in New York so they were going to cycle 672 miles because obviously the journey is like 3,000 miles, but they can't even cycle all the way to America. Now, um, they did that for the anniversary and there was five cyclists that would do that. Now, the cyclists that um, were doing that were David Wally, who led the RAF search and rescue team on the night. Paul Ray was an 18-year-old Lockerbie resident in 1988 and volunteered to help search the hills the night that it crashed. The other two were David Walpole, who was a bank manager in Dumfries and is now a paramedic in the Lockerbie area, and Brian Asher, who was the head teacher at Lockerbie Academy. There's also the fifth was Colin Dorrance. And the reason I said him last is because I kind of want to tell you a bit of a story about Colin Dorrance on the night. Now, Colin Dorrance was the youngest police officer on duty that night. He was 18 years old and was on duty outside the town hall when like obviously the plane had crashed and everything and he was based outside the town hall when a farmer drove down from the hills in a pickup truck with debris from the Pan Am 103 flight and placed in the front seat of his van was the body of a young girl. The child was the first victim to arrive at what became the makeshift morgue but the young constable had never discovered who she was until like a couple of years ago. Um, So obviously we know kind of what happened that night and obviously the morgue and he carried the child into the town hall and it was a body of a child that they'd found in the field at the back of his farm. It was clearly under the age of five and like they didn't have many injuries. It just looked like they were sleeping. But it took him 25 years to find out that the child was a relative on the plane. So obviously the child was a victim from the plane. But the child's name was Bryony Owen, who was 20 months old and had been on the flight with her mum, Yvonne Owen, from Wales to spend Christmas in Boston. So that he kind of dealt with all of that and that kind of stuck with him. He is still, as far as I'm aware, a policeman in Lockerbie, but he dealt with that that whole evening. And obviously, I think that's quite nice that he found out who it was because he said that had kind of like haunted him and the farmer for the last like 20 odd years. Obviously, the first victim he had to deal with was a 20 month year old child. In Scotland, there is also memorials. There's one in Sherwood Crescent in Lockerbie where the wings of the aircraft created the 50-metre-long crater. Um, and there's one at Thundergarth Church near where the nose section of Flight 103 came to kind of collapse. Obviously, 
everything's kind of moved away from that and I suppose the town of Lockerbie are trying to get on with it but I think it is one of those things you are never going to forget so Anthony and I kind of spoke about this just before we began recording like it's not one of those cases when you hear of someone getting murdered or you hear of like all the kind of other cases we've covered yes obviously murder is horrific but I can't even imagine a plane just landing on my house or I can't imagine being on a plane and crashing somewhere I've never really even been before it's such a horrific disaster and I was kind of unsure whether to cover it or not because it's not what we normally cover but I think there's so much to the story that people don't really know and I'm glad I kind of done that so that is me finished Samantha do you have anything you want to add uh, no nothing in particular like you said it's an awful tragedy and um it's something that will stay with everyone forever especially obviously the people in the town um but it's something that everybody knows at least a little bit of like obviously we weren't born then but we know about it or at least we know the mm-hmm. name and thanks for covering it because I didn't know the ins and outs so that was yeah thank you it's okay there's um, also loads of stuff as well from like victims families and people that are like were in Lockerbie at the time like online which is really interesting to read and I think if you ever have the chance to go to Lockerbie it's a lovely wee place and I think definitely go and see the memorials if you're around